Marketing Unplugged, Potpourri 1, Egyptian Cotton Bed Bath & Beyond want me to believe that their sheets made of Egyptian cotton are the epitome of luxury and that my bed partner and I are worth the price bump. I'm told that Egyptian cotton is synonymous with comfort, opulence, and sophistication, perfect indulgence for snuggling up, getting comfy, and letting your cares fall away. How much is real? How much is hype? Is this another marketing trick for dumb Americans who fall for the allure of an exotic provenance? And what does Egyptian mean, in fact? Does it refer to a specific variant of cotton or any kind of cotton that happens to be grown in Egypt? High luxury cotton, referred to as extra long staple, or ELS cotton, can be grown in Egypt, but not exclusively. The longer and thinner ELS fibers result in a durable fabric with a silkier feel. However, poor quality cotton is also grown in Egypt and may be blended in with ELS cotton. Therefore, labeling something as Egyptian is essentially a meaningless marketing term, though more recently the Egyptian government has tried to create an industry standard based on DNA testing to verify ELS cotton. In the U.S., ELS cotton may be trademarked as the luxury cotton brand Supima. Struggling to find a point of difference with varieties and countries of origin often point out that to prevent clumping, Egyptian cotton is, quote, delicately hand-picked with loving care, end quote. As quaint as this description might be, it also carries with it the putrid whiff of slave labor in the American cotton industry. If not slave labor, then exploitative labor. In Egypt, this translates to child labor, where children work grueling hours picking bugs off the growing cotton. 2. Thread Count Thread count is the companion marketing ploy for sheets, tapping into the American concept that more is better. There are two different types of weave, the basic percale, which is one fiber over and one under, and the silky or sateen, which is one fiber under and three over. Thread count represents the sum of the vertical warp and horizontal weave in a square inch of fabric. The higher the thread count, the softer and more durable the sheets, up to 50 years. But frankly, I don't want to inherit Granny's sheets. Sateen is more loosely woven and susceptible to snags, and thus the thread count is generally higher than percale, particularly if fine threads are used. For percale, the average thread count is 180. For sateen, 300 to 600. Additionally, it is likely that the manufacturer is fudging the numbers by twisting more than one thread into the ply, thus doubling the thread count. 3. Triple Washed Lettuce Bag lettuce typically includes the claim that it is, quote, triple washed, unquote. I immediately consider that wash is an umbrella term that includes spritzing, sprinkling, rinsing, dousing, dunking, and scrubbing. YouTube videos of industrial lettuce washers suggest that perfunctory spritzing is an accurate description. A thick, jumbled layer of lettuce is loaded onto a conveyor belt that quickly passes under three closely spaced but separate pipes spraying water. There is no agitation, dunking, or any guarantee that all the leaves get wet, much less three times. It is a common misconception that triple washing is designed to eliminate bacteria such as E. coli. Nope. Washing only removes dirt and other debris embedded in the leafy curls of the lettuce. In fact, this washing step may increase the foodborne illness through cross-contamination in the water supply. Therefore, some of the wash water may include bleach or other disinfectant. 
If this is the case, shouldn't we all be washing our lettuce at home? Again, no. The FDA points out that we are all dirty and unreliable slobs. Our counters, cutting boards, hands, sneezes, and coughs pose a greater risk of cross-contamination. Lettuce growers love the word triple wash since it suggests both a higher level of safety, which it doesn't, and feeds into America's love affair with convenience. 4. Triscuits In my youth, cracker options were limited to triscuits or wheat thins. Individuals and entire families had staunch preferences. Wheat thins were preferred by those who appreciated their sweeter taste. Triscuits were praised for their sturdier construct, ideal for dipping and cheese. One box of each stood side by side on the grocer's shelf. Fifty years later, it's an entirely different story. With a flood of new products entering the market, increasing visibility for Triscuits became an important marketing strategy. Instead of one flavor of Triscuits, there are now 18 different options, ranging from balsamic vinaigrette to avocado, cilantro, and lime. Aside from the flavor, shoppers can choose between different shapes and sizes. Triscuits are no longer nestled up to a companion box of wheat thins. The display consumes four rows of shells extending from me to forehead level. Yes, the number of options might expand the market for the once humble cracker, but this strategy has the added bonus of crowding out smaller or innovative brands struggling to get a toehold in this competitive market. As the Triscuit product line expanded, grocery stores realized that manufacturers would pay for the hotly contested real estate of eye-level shelf space. Even more competitive is the fixed size of the freezer case or the checkout line filled with impulse purchases. In the 1980s, grocery stores started charging slotting fees to reserve shelf space for those willing to pay for it. These fees are an important source of fixed income for the grocery store, which operates on slim margins otherwise. Once the product is slotted on the shelf, the store can charge a yearly fee to keep it there, similar to rent for a high-end apartment. The grocery store can extract more money by charging for product inclusion in their flyers or demanding free product for buy one, get one free promotions. All of these fees are, of course, passed on to the consumer. The unsuspecting shopper may stand in rapture in front of the Triscuit display, thinking that only a great country like the United States could offer 17 different flavors. When I stand there, I think I don't need a cracker sprinkled with some sort of pixie dust suggestive of cilantro and lime. I want something new and exciting, but sadly realize that I am a pawn in a hidden, complex, and devious system designed to favor the behemoth manufacturers who can pay to play. 5. Flushable The market for wet wipes or baby wipes exploded in the 1990s, responding to parents' interest in a more durable wipe imbued with lotion, fragrance, and disinfectants. The market expanded to include any kind of personal hygiene beyond the tender skin of baby bottoms. For example, dude wipes are specifically marketed to men based on their larger size and more horsepower than flimsy toilet tissue. The product was profiled on Shark Tank. Mark Cuban, one of the judges, became an investor and showed up in one of their ads. Tapping into America's thirst for convenience and disdain for smeared body fluids, manufacturers gleefully have marketed their products as flushable, even though wet wipes are specifically designed not to disintegrate like toilet paper. Without a standard definition, marketers can use the word to describe anything that could be gagged down a swirling bowl. In this context, my niece's sock could be accurately described as flushable. 
even though several days later it resulted in a burbling excremental experience in the sink and shower that my family has tried to forget but cannot. Wet wipes can have the same result, clogging both household and downstream sewer systems, creating repulsive accretions of solidified fat called fatbergs. It is estimated that extracting fatbergs costs U.S. utilities about $1 billion annually. The jousting over the definition of flushable has begun, pitting the wet wipe industry against the Federal Trade Commission that has prohibited the use of the word flushable in certain products. Manufacturers can use alternative wording such as, quote, safe for sewers, unquote. California, Oregon, and Illinois have ratcheted up efforts by mandating a Do Not Flush logo on wet wipes. Manufacturers have countered these efforts with lawsuits contending that the plaintiffs have not definitively proven that wet wipes are the predominant culprit in fatbergs. The wet wipes aisle in my local grocery store reveal different packaging approaches. Some wipes have deleted the word flushable from their packaging and remain silent on the subject. Others display the Do Not Flush logo on the front, near where the wipe is dispensed. Others bury it on the back of the package. Some wipes take an environmental approach, noting that their product is plant-based, probably bamboo, contrasting with wet wipes that can be made with microplastics. However, this feel-good designation has no bearing on flushability. Then we have the example of dude wipes that encourage men to abandon all use of toilet paper. Their package proudly states their product is flushable. Few will notice the disclaimer in itty-bitty font on the back of the package, noting that their wipe should not be flushed if it's against the law, if there's fat or grease in the drain, or if consumers are unsure of their system capabilities. Regardless of any regulations, manufacturers can feel smug in the knowledge that their marketing efforts over the past 30 years will have lasting effects. Undoing the learned habits of consumers will take a determined educational campaign. As evidence that there is no cause without an advocacy group, the nonprofit group, the Responsible Flushing Alliance, has risen to the challenge.